You can turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 1. Psalm chapter 1. We're beginning on the Psalms this evening. So this evening will be a little bit of a look at Psalm chapter 1. A little bit of a look at Psalm chapter 1. Am I, am I in the house? There it is. Yep. Good. <clears throat> what, what are you doing? No, no, no. Go sit with your mom. Go sit with your mom. <laughs> so this evening we're going to start looking at the Psalms. We're going to do a bit of an introduction to the Psalms this evening. We're going to begin to look a little bit at Psalm chapter 1, uh, and we will continue that next week. Psalm chapter 1, verse uh, 2, makes the statement, that the righteous person meditates on the law day and night. So tonight I'm going to do a little bit of an introduction to the Psalms for you, and uh, then next week we're going to actually talk about what that word meditate means and how we're to actually do that with the Psalms. If you would, though, let's just begin by reading the Psalms, and then we will open, we will, we'll ask the Lord to, to open our hearts and our minds to understand what he's saying to us about this particular passage, and then we'll, we'll jump in. Psalm, Psalm 1, verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your word to us. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us the Psalms, not only to teach us about you, about mankind, about humanity and about life, Lord, but to help us shape our emotions, to teach us not only how to think, Father, but how to feel. God, we just pray that your Spirit would speak to us this evening as we begin this look at the Psalms, that you would open our hearts to understand exactly what it is that you intend to do through the Psalms. And as we look tonight, Father, help us to understand the importance of meditating upon your Word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. There's a preacher that I, I know from, from the Dallas, Texas area. His name is Matt Chandler. And he tells a story of uh, a time when he was at vacation Bible school. We've got VBS coming up here in a couple of months. And he talks about this time where as a little boy, he was attending vacation Bible school and they were teaching him all of these songs. And they were uh, you know, telling the boys and girls about the Lord. And they were teaching, he remembers specifically, all these different songs, they would teach the gestures and you do all this stuff and they would learn all that sort of thing. And you remember specifically, there was this one song that was to a really fast, almost sort of an angry beat. And he doesn't really remember any of the other lyrics about this song, but he remembers one line in particular. And the line was, God hates all liars. From Revelation chapter 20, verse 8. And he remembers going to vacation Bible school and singing a song that had this line in it. And he remembers thinking how much fun it was. And they were doing all these hand gestures and all these motions. And they were singing this song. And there's this point 
And he tells this in, in a, a sermon that I heard him preach once. There's a point in the time in which he's singing the song, God hates liars, God. And he stops and he's thinking about the lyrics and he thinks to himself, as a little boy, I have told lies. God hates liars. I am a liar. God hates me. And he says that there's this moment of, of just, he has an eye-opening experience where he's singing this song and he kind of just sort of stops singing the song and he's thinking, what is this that I'm singing? Now, if you're like me and you heard somebody tell you that story, undoubtedly the first question that you're thinking to yourself, the first question that pops to your mind is, what kind of twisted vacation Bible school is this kid attending? You know, that they're teaching these kids these really sort of mean-spirited lyrics. I don't really know what church he was going to or, or what type of songs that they were teaching him, but it, the reason I begin with that opening story is that this pastor began to learn significant truths about God as a result of a song that he was taught that he began to sing as a child. Now, we can debate whether or not as a six- or seven-year-old boy that's the best way to start off teaching children that God hates all liars, uh, from Revelation chapter 20. But the point is that children learn through singing. It's undeniable. We all can point to a specific point in time in our childhood in which we heard a song, or we may have even sang a song, that talked to us, that impacted us. It moved us in some way. If you stop to think about it, why is it that musicians bother to write songs, to put lyrics to music, to craft poetry? Is it not because they want to move us, not only in our thoughts, but in some way to move us in our hearts? Absolutely, that's the purpose of the song. That's the purpose of the songs. As we come to the book of Psalms, we understand that this is God's hymnal. This is the hymnal of Israel. And God gives us the Psalms to do a couple of things. Number one, it tells us about God. It tells us about deep theology, deep truths about the Father. It tells us about human life. It speaks to the human condition, the human element. You'll find all number of different Psalms recorded throughout the collection of the 150. Some of them are songs of praise, but at the same time, you'll find songs of lament, songs of sorrow, songs of grieving. You'll even find what is sometimes referred to as imprecatory psalms or psalms of cursing in which the psalmist is singing a song crying out for God to bring judgment on his enemies. So the songs teach us about God. They also speak powerfully to the human condition. But what I've come to realize more than anything is that the psalms are there to help us to understand how we are to feel what types of emotions we are to have when we encounter certain circumstances. We begin here with Psalm 1. This psalm introduces the whole book of Psalms. You'll notice if you've ever read through the Psalms that the Psalms, uh, they're broken up into a collection, five collections. There are five specific collections of Psalms. If you've ever read through the Psalms, if you come to the tail end of Psalm 41, don't flip there, just listen, but if you come to the tail end of 
Psalm 41, there will be a little heading, most often included in your Bibles, that's not just put there by the editor for your convenience. It's actually recorded in the original manuscripts. It'll say the end of the first volume or the end of the first collection. And then there will typically be a little bit of a doxology, some sort of a praise there at the end. And then Psalm 42 starts the next collection. You come to the tail end of Psalm 73, same thing. There's a little conclusion. It says it's the end of the second volume, the end of the second set. There's a doxology. And then you go to the end of Psalm 90. Same thing. It's the end of the third volume. There's a little bit of a doxology there. You come to the end of Psalm 107, and there's a doxology there. And of course, Psalm 108 to the last Psalm, Psalm 150, that forms the fifth collection. So as you work your way through the Psalms, you find five collections of Psalms. And if you will look with me right here in verse 2, as Psalm 1 introduces the whole collection, the whole anthology of five different collections of psalms, verse 2 makes this statement, the righteous person, to paraphrase here, the righteous person's delight is in the law of the Lord. Most of your translations will render it law. Uh, some of the more modern paraphrases will translate it as the instruction or the teaching of the Lord. The Hebrew word there is Torah which we understand Torah, as used by Jews, is referencing the first five books of the Bible. It's typically understood to be the law. Although if you're familiar with the first five books of the Bible, you'll understand that it's not all law. You have Genesis, which deals with creation account and the history of early man. You have Exodus, which deals with God's deliverance of Israel from the nation of Egypt. Then you come to Leviticus, which has a lot of law. And then you come to Numbers, which has a lot of chronology. And then you come to Deuteronomy, which has a lot more law. Those are the first five books of the Bible that are commonly understood by Jews to be Torah. So Torah, in the Jewish mind, has come to be synonymous with the word law. But even if you look at those first five books, you understand that there's a lot of different things going on there besides just law. The Hebrew word Torah means literally instruction, which is what you find in the first five books of the Bible. Not just law, but a broad range of, of instruction taking place in a lot of different literary genres, a lot of different types of, of literature that are presented. Psalm 1 introduces the book of Psalms, which, just like the Torah, are grouped together in a collection of five, same as the Torah. So that when you have the Torah, a collection of five specific books, the Psalms are very carefully put together in an arrangement that mirrors the five books of the Torah. Whereas God gives instruction in terms of what is right and wrong behavior in the Torah, in the Psalms, God is very specifically working in such a way as to teach us how to feel the proper emotions to have to those different circumstances and the different things that we encounter in life. So whereas the Torah is dealing with head knowledge and giving history and facts and figures and basic information, the Psalms are written in such a way as to help us to feel the right way about those things. The Psalms are clearly poems that are meant to be sung. How do you know that? The word psalm is a transliteration of a word that means literally to the strings. The psalms are intended to be sung with 
a stringed instrument. That's what the word psalm means. So in this point in time in Israel's history, they would have had harps or lyres. That's the instrument they would have used to perform, to lead the congregation in the worship of these different psalms. The psalms, lastly, are inspired by God. This isn't just a musician's attempt to show us how he feels about certain things. This isn't just a musician's attempt to share with us his thoughts and his reflections on God. These are divinely inspired songs that have been put to music in order to help us from God the Father directly to understand how we are to feel about certain things. Now, before we jump into this, to help you to see this, I want you to stick your thumb there, and I want you to go with me, go way, way right to the book of Job. Uh, sorry, Jonah. Go to the book of Jonah, Jonah chapter 4. You're probably familiar with Jonah. My daughters are. If you have kids or grandkids and they've ever watched the VeggieTales movie, they've understood the basic concept. There's a prophet. God calls him to go to Nineveh. He rebels against it. He says, no, I don't want to because he hates people in Nineveh and he doesn't want them to have God's mercy in their lives. So he runs the opposite direction. Of course, he gets on a ship. He's sailing away in the ocean. God causes a, a tempest to come upon the ship. The people are afraid for their lives. Jonah confesses. He says, it's my fault. They said, what should we do? Jonah says, throw me overboard and maybe God will spare you. Of course, they argue over this. Finally, they decide they do throw him overboard. A great fish swallows Jonah. Jonah has this moment where he repents before the Lord. Fish spits Jonah out. Jonah comes to the city of Nineveh. Nineveh basically hears the preaching of the gospel. They repent. That actually angers Jonah. Jonah's first three chapters are just plot building to this last chapter. And I want you to look with me in chapter 4, verse 1. It displeased Jonah exceedingly. Now, Jonah's upset. He's angry. He does not want Nineveh to repent, so he gets angry. Here's the question. Is that a God-honoring emotion? When the Ninevites hear the preaching of God's Word, they're like, what have we done? They repent, and Jonah, the text says, he is exceedingly displeased. Another way of putting, he's ticked off. So ask yourself the question, is that the emotional response that God wants Jonah to have at the repentance of the Ninevites? Look at it says here, verse 2, he prayed to the Lord and he said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my own country? I knew this was going to happen. I knew they were going to repent. I didn't want this to happen. He goes on, That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. I knew you'd have grace. I knew you'd be merciful. And I didn't want them to have any mercy. So Jonah acknowledges with the lips of his own mouth that he disagrees with God's mercy and grace on the Ninevites. And he doesn't have the same emotional response to their salvation as the Father does. Now look what it says here. Verse 3, Therefore, therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. He's not just a little upset. I'm ready to die. I'm so ticked off. It's the ultimate form of spite. You've used me to save people I utterly hated. I'm so angry. I don't think you should be using me for anything else. Just take my life away. 
Verse 4. The Lord said, now notice the question. He doesn't say, there, there, Jonah. It'll be okay. Cheer up. Things will look better tomorrow morning. That's not what he says. Notice the question that the Lord asks Jonah. Verse 4. Do you do well to be angry? The question in the Hebrew literally is, is this right? It's a moral question. It's an ethical question. What God the Father is saying to Jonah is, is this an ethically, morally correct, emotional response to what I've just done? Understand now, First Baptist, how we feel about things carries an ethical connotation just as much as what we might do about things. You've heard the expression, well, I'll do this because I know the Lord wants me to do it, but I'm not going to like it. God's question in that moment is, do you do well not to like it? Is it right for you to feel this way? Our emotions very much so carry a morality. Why? How? How is that possible? How is it possible that how we feel emotionally is something that even the Father above judges us for? What are emotions? When something happens and you have an emotion, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, I I can't control the way I feel about something, but can you? Ask yourself this question. What is an emotion? What is it that is really happening when we have emotions? I want you to go all the way back. Go back left. Go all the way to first, I beg your pardon, second Samuel chapter twelve. An emotion is the reaction of the heart to a particular value that you have. If you feel strongly about something, if you have an emotional response to something, that is because you value whatever it is that you're having an emotional response to. If you value it, you will react to it. I do not eat breakfast. My children eat breakfast. They love to eat Lego Maego waffles and toaster strudel. They love the syrup. They love the creamy, sort of tasty, I don't know what other stuff is that they put on there. I don't eat, I eat toast and coffee. I'm very simple. When my wife says to me, tomorrow for breakfast, do you want toaster strudel or do you want Lego Maego? I really don't care because I'm, I'm just drinking coffee, okay? If she says, well, I think tomorrow we're going to have, le- uh, we're gonna have uh, waffles, Lego Maego waffles. Sorry, some of you are looking at me like, what is Lego Maego? Waffles, waffles, okay? My children call it Lego Maego. That's why I'm calling it Lego Maego. My wife says to me, we're going to have waffles tomorrow, and I wake up the next day, and she's making toaster strudel, what is this? What are you thinking? We said we were going to have waffles. Well, honey, what are you doing? Do you expect that to be my emotional response? No, because I don't care. I'm just going to drink a cup of coffee and be on the way out the door to work. I, it doesn't matter to me. Now, why did my wife make the call to go from waffles to toaster strudel? Well, any number of reasons. Maybe we were out of waffles. I don't know. If she says we're going to have waffles and then she 
breaks out with the toaster strudel and I fly off the handle, do you think I might have a little bit of an inordinate love of waffles? When I get angry, if I'm told I'm going to have waffles and I don't have waffles and that makes me angry, would you not rightly conclude that there's an unhealthy desire, an unhealthy value of waffles in my life? Absolutely. Now, that's not a stretch. That's biblical. Look with me at 2 Samuel chapter 12. David is a righteous man. He loves the Lord. He's written many of the psalms that we're going to learn about on Sunday nights moving forward. David's got a problem. One evening when kings should have been out making war, he stayed at home. And at night, as he was on his rooftop, he looked across the way and he spied this beautiful, ravishing woman named Bathsheba. He lusted after her. They had an affair. She becomes pregnant. He ultimately ends up murdering her husband. Problem solved, right? No, because you see, God sees everything. God sends the prophet Nathan to confront David. Watch carefully what happens. The Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and he said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. That's a little strange, but basically he's really, he's really, this, this sheep is really near and dear to his heart. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man. This is the poor man's neighbor. And the rich man was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. Now just stop right there and think for a minute what's happening. Nathan comes to David. David, who is a righteous man, who loves righteousness. David, who has just murdered Uriah so that he could cover up his affair with Bathsheba. He says, David, there's two men. One rich, one poor. Poor man, he just has this lamb that he loves. Rich man, thousands of sheep. Guy comes to stay with the rich man. Rich man, he doesn't want to kill any of his thousands of sheep, so he steals from the poor man, takes the poor man's sheep, kills it, and serves that for dinner. Does that seem fair? No. What is David's emotional response? The death penalty. Theft of a sheep is a serious thing. But did you see how David reacted emotionally? This is the king of Israel. This is somebody who values righteousness, who values doing justice. And what Nathan has just done is he has just drawn out of David the value that David has for doing what is right. He has drawn it out in terms of David's emotional response. And he's going to use that to now convict David of his sinfulness with Bathsheba. Look at what he says. He says at the tail end of verse 5, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he has done this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan says to David, You are the man. You're the one who's done this. Now, it's very hard at this point in time for David to turn around and say, well, I mean, she was out on her roof. What was she doing out there at that time of night? I mean, I couldn't help myself. 
See, David could begin to justify his behavior. But what David has done is exactly like what this rich man and this poor man, what has transpired between the two of them. If his emotional response to that hypothetical scenario is one of righteous anger and the demand for justice, it is very difficult now for him, with a straight face and without being an absolute hypocrite, to say that what he has done with Bathsheba and the murdering of Uriah is somehow acceptable. David's emotional response condemns him, and it is a response to the values that he shares. Our values drive our emotional responses. Why Jonah was upset at the salvation of the Ninevites was because he hated them. His value was, his desire was for them to die. Your values reflect your emotional responses. Psalm 1 introduces all of the Psalms, and now listen to what it says. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seats of scoffers, but his delight Look at the emotional word there. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, or on his Torah, or on his instruction, he meditates day and night. Emotional word is used to delight, to take pleasure, to take enjoyment. God is saying here in Psalm 1, I'm going to wrap it all together for you, as this psalm introduces all of the 150 psalms that are coming, the blessed man is not the man who just knows what the Bible says. The blessed man is not just the man who reads it and meditates on it. That is not sufficient to the fullness of the blessing that God wants to bring into your life. No, no, no. The Scriptures call for us to take our enjoyment, to take our happiness, to take pleasure. These are all emotional concepts. The Scripture calls for us to delight in the Scripture. Blessedness, as Psalm 1 introduces all of the other Psalms that are about to follow, comes from delighting in the instruction of God. Not just reading it, not just knowing it, but liking it, wanting it, desiring it. Now, tonight we're going to look at verses one, two, and three, briefly. And then next week, we're going to go at length about what it means to meditate on God's Word. It says here, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Blessedness can only come from God. So as you're reading this, immediately the picture that is presented to you is you've got wicked people, you've got sinful people, you've got scoffers, people who make fun of righteousness. Blessing obviously isn't to be found with them. It's obvious. What does the word blessing mean? The word is first used in Genesis. It's right from the very beginning. God makes a statement in Genesis chapter 1 regarding fish and birds. He makes this statement, let the waters swarm with the swarms of living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. 
So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And here it is. God saw that it was good and God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. The very first time the word blessing is used in the Bible, and this might surprise you, it's not spoken directly regarding mankind. It's spoken regarding fish and birds. That caught my attention. Blessing is not necessarily the private enjoyment of God's favor. God's ultimate goal in creating birds and fish is that those creatures would be a blessing to us. When God bestows His blessing on anyone or anything, it is never intended to be a private individual enjoyment of God's favor. It is an enjoyment of God's favor, but it is always intended to be something that you use to bring that enjoyment and that blessing to those around you, which is why the second time that the verb, that the word blessed is used, again, Genesis chapter 1, this time it does speak to men. It says in Genesis 1.26, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens. Whoa, whoa. The first time he used the word blessed, he said, let the birds be blessed, let the fish be blessed. Now he's saying, let's make man in our image to rule over those creatures. They're blessed, they're given to man to have dominion over it. What does this word blessing really mean? We go a step further. Over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over all the creeping things that creep on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. And God, second time he uses the word, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Blessing has to do with having God's favor and God's approval in your life. But blessing has to do also with sharing that favor and sharing that approval with those around you. A couple of years ago, we were out walking, and I saw a hawk circling high overhead. Have you ever seen a bird do that? You know it's watching something. It's just going around in circles. And so I stopped and I started to watch this hawk way up in the sky. Most beautiful creature, I, I mean, in, in, its, in its proper context, to watch a hawk soar, it's a thing of beauty, it's a thing of majesty. I couldn't help but watching this hawk and feeling a sense of awe and joy at God. And I'm watching it, watching it, and all of a sudden, it points its nose to the ground and it just soars like a missile, headed straight for the ground. And it's a far distance away, I couldn't quite see but at the very last second, it just flares its wings, its talons shot out, and it snaked something out of the ground, whether it was a squirrel or a mouse or something, I'm, I'm not sure. But at the very last second, as he's shooting to the ground, he flares his wings, he pulls up, his talons shoot out, and then he begins to pump his wings. And he begins to carry this thing off. And I was thinking to myself, man, the vision 
the eyesight, the ability from a distance way up in the sky to look at the crowded ground with grass and rocks and everything else and to be able to see something and to soar at it and to snag it. That's the God that we worship. He created that bird. As I observe the beauty of birds in flight, or as I observe the the swimming of fish as they wiggle through the water, there's something marvelous there. There's something beautiful. I draw joy from watching those creatures. They bless me. In the same way, the Lord says that the church, as a witness to the world, is to be something that the world can watch, observe, and take joy from it. Take blessing from it. Now to that end, there are three things we are told not to do. Number one, we do not walk with we do not walk in the counsel of the wicked. We do not stand in the way of sinners, and we do not sit in the seat of scoffers. Number one, you'll notice walk, stand, sit. There's a progression here. There's walking, then there's standing, not walking, staying still. And then the third aspect is sitting down, taking your place. In the same way that there's a progression of activity from walking, standing, sitting, you'll notice there's a progression. It says, the wicked, sinners, and scoffers. The wicked, as an adjective, that word describes all humanity until we find Christ. It's a state of being. It's just who we are. We are born with a sin nature. It's a simple adjective. The next word, sinner, that's a verb. That's a person who's actively engaging in behavior that is dishonoring to the Lord. And then the third adjective, scoffer, that's not only someone who actively engages in behavior that is displeasing to the Lord, but with the words of his mouth, he makes fun of those who would be righteous. So there's a progression here. You don't walk with the wicked, you don't hang out or stand with sinners, and you certainly don't take your seat, you don't make your place at home with those who scoff. Those three things. Don't do those things. What should we do instead? Hang out with righteous people? Well, that begs the question, what is a righteous person? He gives you the answer. The blessed man is the man who delights in the law of the Lord, which we're going to look at more closely next week. As we wrap up our time together this evening, I want to ask you two questions. The first question is, as we look at this text, Psalm 1, why does God begin the Psalms this way? Why does he start this way? What is his goal? And the second question I want to ask you, if you look at verse 3, it says, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Why does God say that? instead of what would naturally be the opposite of verse 1. You guys hear my preaching. When I introduce something, I'll tell a story, and usually at the end of the sermon, I'll conclude with a story 
that is almost an exact identical or parallel to the story I started with. For example, this morning I started off with home, sweet home, and I concluded with let's not stay in Oz, let's go home and be home with the Lord. You see the parallel? That's what we call symmetry. Okay? That, that's, that's to help everyone know, okay, he's starting, he's introducing his topic, and then this is his conclusion. It's bookends, it brings it all together. It's, it's like tying a nice neat little bow on the whole thing, right? Well, ask yourself this question. Why does the psalmist not do that here in the first song? Look at it. It says in verse 1, Who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seats of scoffers, but his light is in the law of the Lord. Why in verse 3 does he not say, The righteous man is like a person who walks in the counsel of the righteous. The righteous man is like a person who uh, stands with other righteous men. The righteous person is a man who takes his seat alongside worshipers. Would a worshiper not be the opposite of a scoffer? Absolutely. Why is it that the psalmist, as he's concluding what he has just said in the first verse, make an analogy to a tree? Now, I'm not going to answer both of those questions tonight, but I'll give you a hint to the second one. A righteous man in his essence, is entirely different from a wicked man. Which is why, when you meditate on the Lord, you're not simply the opposite of a scoffer. You're not simply the opposite of a sinner. You're not simply the opposite of a wicked man. You're something else entirely different. How can that be? How can the Lord make us something else entirely, altogether? We're going to answer those questions next week as we dig deeper into Psalm 1. But as I close tonight, I want to tell you about my grandmother. Grandmother's favorite song, Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound. She smoked cigarettes her whole life, and as she was passing away at the end of her life, she was dying of emphysema. She came to live with us. I was a five-year-old boy. Every night, after dinner, she would go to the piano and she'd begin to play Amazing Grace. She wore an oxygen mask, and so sometimes as she was singing, she would begin to choke and cough, and she'd have difficulty getting through the song. To this day, whenever we sing Amazing Grace, it's a wonderful song. How sweet the sound saved a wretch like me. It's a song of hope, it's a song of promise, and yet, every time I sing that song, I'm conflicted. Because that song, when we sing it, I don't just hear the vocalist singing it, I hear the coughing of my grandmother. I hear the sound of a woman singing who loved the Lord so much that even though it was difficult to sing the song, still sang still found the joy of the Lord in it. When we sing Amazing Grace, it's a song that has shaped the emotions of my heart in a very specific way. Such that whenever we sing it, I don't just hear Amazing Grace anymore. I hear the promise of one day being able to see my grandmother again. I don't just hear us singing Amazing Grace. 
I hear my grandmother singing Amazing Grace. She died when I was seven. I barely knew her. But because of that song, it brings sadness to my heart. But it also brings incredible hope because of what it says and because of who sang it to me. First Baptist Church, my prayer for us as we begin the songs is that they would shape the emotions of our heart in a similar way. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we love you. We thank you for this introduction to the book of Psalms this evening. As we begin to chew into this, Lord, as we begin to look at this, I pray, God, that you would begin working in our hearts to shape our emotions, to redefine our values, to show us those things which ought to be most important in our lives, that when we encounter different circumstances and different experiences in life, that our emotional response would be glorifying and honoring to you. So Lord, we just turn to your hymnal this evening. We turn to your songbook. And we ask you, Lord, sing a song for us and help us to feel the way that the song is intended to make us feel. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.